The European Union is a great mechanism to avoid the crisis, but when the crisis has come, there are two major deficiencies. One is speed of decision-making. And secondly, with the pandemic, very much revealed the risk-averse nature of the European decision-making. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And the voice you just heard was Ivan Krastev, the Bulgarian political scientist and well-known thinker on European politics, is our special guest. So stick around to hear his thoughts on the pandemic's impact on the EU, the evolving relationship with China and illiberalism in Europe. But before we get to him... We are in the middle of a deadly pandemic, yet much of the EU political world was consumed this week by the seating arrangements at a meeting in Ankara. We'll explore why Sofagate, as it's been called, struck such a chord. And we'll also look at why Central and Eastern Europe is struggling so badly with the coronavirus right now. To do all of that, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a rather different podcast panel this week. Uh, Matt and Reem are off and we're going to focus on Central and Eastern Europe in a moment. Uh, we'll bring in uh, colleagues from Warsaw and Prague to do that. But I'm joined already by our Brussels politics reporter and former correspondent in Budapest, Lily Beyer. Hi, Lily. Hi, Andrew. And before we get on to Central and Eastern Europe and the coronavirus, we wanted to talk about the kind of big story in the Brussels bubble this week, which has been dubbed Sofagate. I'm going to try and uh, attempt a summary. And you uh, put me right, Lily, if uh, I've missed out anything significant. Uh, Basically, this was a trip to Ankara to visit uh, President Erdogan by European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. The thing that went viral is... At the beginning of the meeting, Erdogan and Charles Michel take chairs and Ursula von der Leyen is relegated, really. It's hard to see it any other way, to a sofa. And Erdogan and Michel seem perfectly happy taking these two chairs. And you have the commission president. And I think important in this context, we're talking about the first female president of the European Commission being given this kind of side role, if you like. And the clip of this went viral, partly because I think Ursula von der Leyen uh, did very well in making clear her displeasure just with a simple exclamation, a kind of arm Um. and kind of raising her hand, kind of palm upwards, just to kind of make clear she was not impressed with this arrangement. Lily, why do you think it has struck such a chord? Because it has, um, you know, it's set off a real kind of well, a big political debate, uh, you know, inside the Brussels bubble, at least. And more broadly, we can see that people are, are reading this story from all over. Why do you think it's really struck a chord? So I think there are a couple of layers here. First of all, that this happened in Turkey, a country that has been criticized over gender rights issues. European leaders went there in part to promote European values in theory, and then the scenario unfolded there. Um, the second element is that, of course, Ursula von der Leyen is the first female commission president. And I think most people would agree that if this happened to a male commission president, it wouldn't have been a story. It wouldn't have gone viral and it wouldn't have been such an awkward scenario. And the third element, which is more insidery for Brussels bubble listeners, is that there have been lots of rumors and rumblings of tensions between Charles Michel and Ursula von der Leyen for months now. And this awkward scene did not help diffuse those rumors. 
Right. There's always a, a certain amount of tension between the Commission, which is, if you like, the kind of closest thing to a kind of federal body that the EU has, and then the Council, which represents the member governments of the EU. So there's always a certain amount of tension there. And this incident played into that. But also then there's uh, the question of the personal relationship between von der Leyen and Michel, which... I certainly think we have not seen any sign that it's particularly warm in all the time since they took office, which is more than a year ago now, getting on for a year and a half. And I, I do think even the way that they reacted to this was quite different. You know, they could have put out a joint statement to kind of calm this down. They did not do that. Uh, we have not heard that they even talked about it afterwards. The commission kind of put out its version of events. The president um, uh, should have been seated uh, uh exactly in the same manner as the president of the European Council and the, uh, and the Turkish president. Um, uh, but as I said, she decided to proceed nevertheless, prioritizing substance over protocol. But nevertheless, let me stress that the president expects, uh, that, he in, expects that the institution that she represents uh, to be treated with the required uh, protocol, and she has therefore... And then Charles Michel came out with his own statement in French on Facebook in the evening, in which he tried to explain what happened and said that he was by no means indifferent to the treatment of Ursula von der Leyen, but certainly didn't accept any responsibility for himself or his organisation. I would say, as a, as a side note, one of the things here is clearly something went wrong in the preparation here. It wasn't certainly in the European Union's interests for this incident to blow up like this. And so uh, we haven't really got to the bottom of who set this up, who said it was okay for two chairs, who kind of let them go into that room and end up in that situation. You know, it's one of these things where the, the symbolism is, is so important and somebody or some people clearly misread the symbolism there. But just to round off, Lily, somebody who was trying to, as we were saying, kind of cushion the blow of Sofagate, as it's become known, it was Jean-Claude Juncker, the former commission president, who you happened to be speaking to on another matter yesterday. But what did he have to say about this? So interestingly, Juncker said that in terms of protocol, the European Council president comes first and the European Commission president comes second. He did say that normally when he would be traveling with the council chief, they would be seated next to each other, but that there were times when he would be seated on a sofa. He did say that it would have been better if Ursula von der Leyen was seated like Charles Michel, kind of on a, on a similar footing. Um, so he wound up somewhere in the middle of this debate, but he did also say that there are more important controversies than this, you know, downplaying it a bit. And going back a bit to the reaction to what happened in the room, in many ways, I think that what happened after the incident politically is a lot more telling than the incident itself because, you know, things happen, things get messed up. But the fact that the commission and the council could not get their act together and could not communicate and be on the same page speaks volumes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Lily, we'll leave that topic there and uh, switch now to Central and Eastern Europe and uh, its struggles with uh, the coronavirus. Uh, let's bring in a couple of colleagues. Uh, first of all, welcome to Jan Chensky in Warsaw. Hi. And to Siegfried Morkowitz in Prague. Hi, Siegfried. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. 
So uh, I just wanted to get a sense, first of all, from each of you of uh, the situation, the coronavirus situation in the countries that you know best. Jan, maybe let's just start with you on uh, how are things right now in Poland? Poland is having a really bad third wave. It's not quite at the level of uh, Hungary and the Czech Republic, but it's it's much worse than the first two waves. We're seeing around 600 deaths a day. It sort of bounces around, but it's at that level. And the infection rate is has soared over the last couple of weeks. So uh, now uh, all schools are closed, shopping malls are closed, big box stores are closed. We still haven't brought in the kinds of restrictions that you see in France and a few other countries where people are basically confined to their homes. Poles are still quite free to be able to travel to other countries if they can grab flights. But there's certainly a sense that the rate of infections and deaths are spiraling out of control over the last few weeks. Mm. Siegfried, how is it in the Czech Republic? In the Czech Republic, it's bad, but it's getting better. Deaths have come down from about an average of about 200 a day. And the infection rate, the rolling infection rate per week is about 38 per 100,000. But having said that, there were 7,000 infections, new infections yesterday, which is still quite high. The latest is the Czech government fired the health minister. Okay. Right? Even though things were, even though things were getting Things good. are going better. Yeah. yeah. We'll get into the politics of it in a, in a moment. Lily, uh, just, I mean, I'm just looking at a chart here of the, you know, the rolling average for COVID deaths. And it shows, I'm just looking at EU countries here and... Czech Republic and Slovakia are both, you know, near the top of the list, as is Poland, but really number one by some distance right now. And obviously these things change is Hungary. So just how bad is the situation in Hungary right now? The situation is very, very bad in terms of the death rate and infection rate. But there's also um, a really unusual phenomenon in Hungary right now because they have a very high vaccination rate. And at the same time, the virus is not under control. So doctors appear to be incredibly worried about what's going on. Mm. Well, let's get into the politics of this and you know how political leaders are handling it. Jan, how, how is the Polish government explaining this third wave being so bad? What are they doing about it? And you know what's the reaction? What's the general sense of, of how they're handling it? The government has actually, in a few press conferences, strangely come out and, and laid most of the blame on the opposition. That the opposition is slowing down their work and making the, it difficult for the, for the government to uh, get a handle on the problem. There's also been an interesting case. There's a fairly crucial local election in uh, a southeastern city called Zeshuf coming up in a few weeks' time. And there's been a noticeable uptick in uh, the vaccinations provided in Zeshuf, which the opposition has said that this is the government doing a central European tradition of so-called electoral sausages. You get a little benefit if you vote for the right people. We don't have the issue that is cropping up in some other Central European countries of the problems around importing or not importing the Sputnik vaccine from Russia. The Poles are so innately anti-Russian that there's just never been any talk of that at all. So that certainly is not something that's on our radar. Right. And that brings us probably neatly back to Siegfried, where the whole question of the Sputnik vaccine and whether to use it has caused real political ructions in both Czech Republic and Slovakia. You can just give us a, a summary there of what's going on, Siegfried, and who's in what camp? I don't have enough time to, to do that. Well, in Slovakia, it caused the fall of the prime minister, Igor Matovic, who is now finance minister. 
today on his Facebook page, he said, I'm in Moscow and I'm negotiating more Sputnik vaccines. Well, again, he did that without consulting anybody. Right, which is what caused the government to fall the first time, right? Because exactly. his coalition partners were not happy about this. They were not happy and they threatened to leave the government unless he stepped down. And I think mm. he just stepped to the side <laughs> rather than right. down. Yeah, a little bit of musical cheers. And what about in the Czech Republic? Well, uh, they fired the health minister, Jan Blatny, yesterday because he refused to allow the use of Sputnik V vaccine unless it was approved by the European Medicines Agency. And Prime Minister Babish yesterday apparently said that Sputnik had nothing to do with Blatny being fired and that they would wait for the EMA to approve Sputnik. So as usual in this country, I don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who to believe. Okay, And I think yeah. a lot of people here feel that way. Right. A lot of confusion. Lily, uh, Hungary is interesting because they have not been shy about um, taking vaccines that have not been approved by the EMA, right? That's right. So Hungary is vaccinating with both Western vaccines, Russian vaccines, and Chinese vaccines. So they have a lot of vaccination opportunities. So as of this morning, and we're recording this on Thursday, at least 2.6 million people have gotten at least one shot. And uh, about a million have been vaccinated with two shots, which is quite a high number for a country of a bit less than 10 million people. So from that perspective, the government has been really betting on opening up to uh, as many vaccine providers as possible. I think it's really important to remember that Hungary will have elections next spring, so in 2022, and that Orban has not been doing very well in the polls recently. So I think that he and his government are very, very anxious to do as much as possible to try to show to their voters that they are putting their best interests at heart. There has been a lot of controversy over the past days about what to do in terms of the economy. So the government has started relaxing some measures, but the Hungarian Medical Chamber, which represents doctors, actually came out with a statement saying that it's too early to do so and that they are very concerned. And they actually called on the population to continue behaving as though restrictions are still in place in order to curb the spread of the virus. Mm. And what's in anyone's best sense about why Central Eastern Europe, which seemed to do pretty well in handling at least the first wave, or you received widespread praise? I remember uh, Siegfried, I think you and I were in touch, and Babish, for example, was, and the Czechs were among the first to really embrace the idea of face masks, which, you know, initially people were saying you should only need to wear them if you have COVID or COVID-like symptoms. And so in some ways, there was quite a lot of credit uh, given to Central and Eastern European governments. What's the best explanation anybody has as to why they've struggled so much this time around? Jan, I mean, what are epidemiologists, experts saying about why Poland is struggling this time? I mean, I think Poland did well in the first wave. It was one of the first countries to lock down and lock down very hard, very fast. And so their, their infection rate was very low in the first wave. People are just tired, as in most other countries. And so we have a, a raft of problems. The Polish test rate is very low. We're doing around 100,000 tests a day. The positive rate is very high, which means it doesn't sort of, it's not actually helping the government track and trace new outbreaks. The government has also had a fairly chaotic legal approach to this. It hasn't 
brought in a state of emergency because it's trying to dodge paying compensation to businesses that run into trouble. So the legal parameters of what it's doing are being undermined by the courts. And a lot of people aren't following the rules. You watch, uh, as is happening in other countries, but the ski season, there were many poles went skiing. There's people in parks, young people are gathering. And so there's an inability to lock people down. And even with the measures that they brought in, the government has refrained from doing a hard lockdown. The vaccine campaign also, Poland started quite strong and then has seen other countries like France, Belgium, Germany overtake it in the last few weeks. So there's been issues with organization, which is basically a problem of this government generally. It's not a very well-organized government. And so these problems are starting to come to the fore, which is why what's driving the numbers here. Mm. Siegfried, what's the best explanation you've heard for why you know the Czech Republic in particular is struggling so much this time? The best explanation I've heard was from the head of the uh, Pirate Party, the opposition Pirate Party, Ivan Bartosz, who said that every time Babish gets an SMS from somebody, he changes the, the policy on the coronavirus. And that's it. Infection rates started going up for the second wave in August. His first health minister said we should put on masks again in stores and transport. And Babish said, no, nobody wants to wear a mask. And Babish was the one who made a video of mask wearing and sent it to prime ministers and presidents across the world. But the Czech Republic is one of the few in Europe that has significantly slowed down the spread of the virus. In this video, we would like to tell you what we did differently. And mainly... Because like he did handle the first wave pretty well, right? Or the, or the... I think they were really the best. They were the first to wear masks. They were the first to shut borders. And they were the first to ease restrictions again. By the end of June, they had eased all restrictions. And the deputy health minister, Roman Primula, who was responsible for lockdown measures, stepped down at the end of June and said, if the cases go up to 400 a day, we should go into lockdown again. Cases were up to 11,000 a day and still no lockdown restrictions because Babish was not listening to his experts. Yeah. I mean, this is the pattern we see again and again, right? We know that lockdowns work in the short term, right? They come at considerable costs, but they work. And what everyone actually, to a greater or lesser extent, seems to struggle with is, okay, what happens when we ease up again and how, how do we keep the numbers down? Obviously, the long-term answer is vaccination. Uh, but in the meantime, it feels like everyone's trying to find a formula that allows you not to have a severe lockdown without a huge surge in cases and deaths. Lily, what's what's the, the general view on why Hungary is struggling so much this time? I think Hungarian experts are very concerned that there's still not enough testing and there's no contact tracing. And another area of concern that, that I've been hearing about recently is that there's a possibility that the virus is also spreading in the hospitals. So people who go into the hospital for something unrelated to COVID and get COVID in the hospital. And uh, unfortunately, I, I also know a a family friend who who lost a loved one that way. But there is not a lot of data and uh, the government is not sharing some information that media outlets are asking for. So there's also tension around the uncertainty. And I think this word has been used before on this podcast, but just confusion about what's happening. Because in the very beginning of the pandemic, I remember when you talk to Hungarians, people would tell you, oh, we don't know anyone who's had COVID. What are you talking about? 
And now when you talk to people, they will all have friends and relatives who've had it. And many of them will tell you that they also know people who have died. So it's a complete transformation. Mm. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. And I'm sorry to have to leave it on such a, a down note, if you like. Let's hope that we can reconvene at some point with some better news uh, later in the year. But for now, uh, Jan, Siegfried and Lily, thanks very much. Coming next, a conversation with Ivan Krastev, the Bulgarian political scientist whose books and columns have become required reading for many people involved in or just interested in European politics. He has a real knack for tackling weighty issues with a light touch. I have to say I enjoy talking to all our guests, but this is one of those conversations I particularly enjoyed. It's coming up in just a moment. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. So, earlier this week, I had the chance to connect via Zoom with Bulgarian political scientist Ivan Krastev. He was speaking to us from Sofia, where he's the chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies. We had a brief chat about Bulgaria's recent general election. So, I do believe we have a 50% chance that before autumn, we're going to have one more elections. Before widening the lens, and we started by talking about the rise of illiberalism, the subject of his most recent book, The Light That Failed, co-authored with Stephen Holmes. I asked Krastev if illiberalism was under more pressure now that Joe Biden had replaced Donald Trump as US president. Uh, no, listen, there's three trends that go in a very different direction. One is, of course, illiberalism is a reality, but there is also now an anti-populist mobilization. Uh, at the same time, on the level of some major value divides, particularly when it comes to different type of a sexual minority or also ethnic issues and others, uh, some of these uh, divides remains. And from this point of view, you can see some of the parties which normally are going to call mainstream parties. Uh, that the Stednik in this illiberal camp, from this point of view, it's some of the countries, the illiberal consensus is not some simply liberal actors. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is also going to change first because of the generation change. But thirdly, and in my view, this is very important, why we all are very much focused on East-West divide. The major divide in Europe is between the big metropolitan centers and the countryside. So this is a very important uh, divide. One of the interesting things that came with uh, the pandemic is that for the first time after 1989, we have a major movement of people from the West to the East. Mm. What do you see as the other main effects on the European Union, if you like, of, of the pandemic and the way that it is handled so far? Do you see the Union overall as strengthened or, or weakened? Or would it be too simplistic even to put it in those terms? 
Yeah, it, it depends on the week. Uh, but uh, in a certain way, <laughs> Camus is, uh, again, three different major trends. One which I found very important about pandemic is, and it's not only on the level of Europe, it's on the level of the world, is paradoxically the pandemics very much intensified the constant comparisons that people are doing between what's happening in their country and what's happening to other countries. I do believe that if there is one dictatorship in the world, this is the dictatorship of comparisons. Mm-hmm. It was always there. It has never been so intensified. And this is affecting politics in a very important way. Secondly, a pandemic is turned out to be at the same moment, nationalist moment and European moment. Nationalist moment because the first thing that governments did when all this started was to close their borders. But on the other side, it also became very clear that in economic terms, there is no national economies in Europe anymore. And from this point of view, it was at moment people close their borders, you realize how much you rely on the things that are not produced in your own country. And from this point of view, the fear that the world is going to become more protectionist in the context of Europe was a push for more European Union and not for more nation state. So from this point of view, you have this nationalization of the sentiment and Europeanization of the interests. So as a result of it, I do believe in this initial stage, the the first six months of of the pandemic, people rediscovered the importance of the European Union, not so much in terms of values, but even on the level of utility. Hmm. Then comes the moment with the vaccination, and unfortunately, the vaccination revealed in my view, two fundamental problem in the way basically Europe deals uh, with the crisis. And the story is that the European Union is a great mechanism to avoid the crisis. But when the crisis has come, there are two major deficiencies. One is the speed of decision-making. European Union is sophisticated, serious, transparent, but very slow. And there are moments in which the speed of the decision-making is becoming even more important than anything else. And secondly, which in my view also should be taken seriously and probably we should discuss more is, unlike in many other places, uh, the pandemic very much revealed the risk-averse nature of the European decision-making. It's not easy to take a lot of risk with such a complex decision-making with so many countries with such institutional sophistication. But you can see it was true for the United States with Biden. It was true for... Netanyahu's Israel, it was true for Johnson's United Kingdom. You see governments that are betting on something, for example, betting on vaccination, and they're ready to overpay, and they're ready to do do this or that. But the politicians said, this is on what I want to be judged. For the European Union, it is much more difficult, and I do believe it's not by accident that when it comes to the vaccination, we try to maximize too many things at the same time. The best price the most transparent process, the fairness that everybody uh, should be equally happy. And it appeared that working with too many (laughs) kind of uh, priorities in a moment like this is not always the best policy. And what lessons would you draw from that? Would you say there needs to be a more decision-making, which is, you know, uses qualified majority or other majorities? And how do you change that risk balance? That seems like a harder thing to fix. No, I do believe it is important. And this is not just the characteristics of the European Union as a political project. I do believe this becomes the characteristics uh, of our political cultures. 
the nation states were also very much risk averse. So everybody's basically blaming Brussels. But uh, when you see the decisions being taken in most of the member states, this type of risk averse policies are very much there. And uh, this has an explanation. Part of it probably is also demographic profile of our societies. Aging people are not famous to be the highest risk takers, and probably this is true for aging societies. But I do believe this is important, and in a way, this should change. Because I'm very much afraid that when in October, if we are unlucky and we're going to have a new lockdowns and people have the feeling that uh, the crisis is not under control, uh, that people can become very resentful. And they can start to compare with what's happening in the United States, which was a disaster case just six months ago, which was happening with the United Kingdom. That was a disaster case. So from this point of view, risk-taking is very important. Listen, there is no zero risk. Even crossing the street on red, uh, on the green is not totally risk-free, at least in some parts of Europe. I'm saying this because uh, the moment when you tell people that they are zero-risk decisions, you're already in a zone in which you're losing. And from this point of view, from time to time, listening to the way the governments talk about health issues and what is happening and so on, I do believe government starts to promising things that even God never promised before. <laughs> I mean, immortality. Yeah. And this is why to try to tell people, we have to make these choices I'm betting on this. This is important. It's really critically important for the European Union because politically tough decisions are going to come after the autumn. We still live in a period in which people are preoccupied with the public health dimension of the crisis. But then the economic crisis will come up. Then who normalizes when? Then our societies are going to be less coherent uh, when you're going to have younger people, when you're going to have vaccinated people. Mm. And then the governments really should be ready to take much more risk. I wanted to touch on another topic, which is also part of your your last book, which is the influence of China and how, you know, China, as you explain, isn't asking other people to imitate its political model. It just wants countries to act in China's interest. And it's kind of neutral on on which model they, they adopt. It just wants them and it exerts considerable influence to try and you know get them to act in China's interests. And again, I wondered if you saw any change in how Europe is responding to China, particularly since the Biden administration came into office. We saw with the recent 17 plus one meeting that some Eastern, Central and Eastern European countries did not send their presidents or did not have their presidents take part in that. Do you see a change in how Europe is dealing with China? Can Europe, especially smaller European nations, afford to change how they deal with China? I do believe that first during the pandemic, basically people tried to see a different China much more aggressive, much more self-confident. And while basically the Chinese are not really in the business of creating Chinese communist parties around Europe and basically exporting their model, they're extremely aggressive in sending the message, do do not dare to criticize me. Mm. So from this point of view, for many of Central and East European countries, China was perceived mainly in economic terms. And because many countries in Central and Eastern Europe were totally preoccupied with Russia for historical reasons. So three things have changed, in my view, dramatically as a result of what we see. 
first is that we realize that nevertheless we like it or dislike it. This type of a systemic competition and rivalry between the United States and China, but also the West and China is there. And for the European Union, basically to pretend that this is not the case is going to be very costly. We're going to be squeezed, and this is uh, quite uh, clear. Secondly, for many who otherwise basically were seeing China as neutral while they were very much about worried about Russia, they realized that uh, in more and more Russia and China comes as a couple. But certainly I do believe suddenly many people realize how much more present and influential China is in European politics than people expected. Because one of the strengths of the Chinese policies was that there was like this stealth planes, which basically it's not easy or impossible to detect by the radar. And then we realize it's not simply the Chinese money, it's not simply technologies, it's not uh, only this and that, but also there is a China's soft power, which best can be seen in the case of the Western Balkans now, where in Serbia and the Western Balkans is the only place in the world in which all the major vaccines are competing with each other, basically in equal qualities. And some of the latest opinion polls that I was seeing is, to surprise too many Europeans, asked to make a choice between these vaccines. Uh, there are more Serbs that go for the Chinese vaccine than to any other. And this is quite interesting, keeping in mind that if we trust at least some of uh, the medical tests that are coming, particularly out of Latin America, out of all these vaccines, uh, the Chinese is the least efficient. So from this point of view, China is selling itself, selling itself as a power, selling itself as a success. And this is a new reality which Europeans cannot ignore anymore. Uh, And it is also not easy to react because paradoxically, the moment when Europeans go in a much more polarized confrontation with China, Europe is also kind of losing its idea of globalized interdependent world. Because at the heart of the European security doctrine is the idea that economic interdependency is a source of security. Now, when we start to realize that economic interdependency can be a major source of insecurity, for Europeans, it's not easy to make this uh, change. So we're going to see more of it. Do you think that Europe sort of could and should end up more squarely on the side of the United States, that if this is a systemic competition, they they need to pick a side and they need to be more squarely alongside the US? Listen, from this point of view, this is slightly like in a polarized politics uh, within our own countries. Somebody has noticed that what you have in the Middle East that's dead animals in the middle of the road. Uh, so from this point of view, it's not simply about the value choices, which of course the, the Europeans feel closer to the United States in this. The problem is that the major selective decoupling and polarization most probably is going to take place in the sphere of technology. So if there's going to be a new wall, it's going to be a technological wall. From this point of view, to 5G debate, which we facing these days, in many respects, uh, reminds me of the Marshall Plan debate, which was in Europe at the late 1940s. So tell me what is your 5G provider, and I'm going to tell you where your geopolitical loyalties go. So for Europe, uh, it's going to be very difficult to stay on its own if we do not have these same technologies, if we cannot basically be technologically independent, and for the moment it is not. So it's not by surprise that I do believe Europe is going to end up in the American technological zone with our specificities and others. 
but it is going to be difficult. And particularly, it's going to be very different for different countries. For countries like Germany, which exports very actively and very much depends on the Chinese market, the cost of this type of decoupling is very high. For countries like Bulgaria, to be honest, we can easily decouple from China, but the problem is the Chinese are not going to notice it. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. As we've mentioned previously, we hope you'll take a bit of time to listen to a special edition of the podcast, an audio appreciation of Stephen Brown, our editor-in-chief, who died of a heart attack last month. You can find it in your feed wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas. The email address is podcast at political.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>